Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, my name's Anna Ridley and you're listening to the Penguin Podcast. Today we have three authors talking about the future, but in very different ways. Yevgeny Morozov is here to explain why a time might come when we regret all the information we've given away about ourselves online. And Jaron Lanier provides a guide to staying yourself and valuing the individual in the era of wikis and the internet hive mind. But first, Robert Coover discusses something very close to our hearts at Penguin, the future of storytelling. Robert made his name as an author of riotously inventive novels and short stories. His writing's often sinister, bawdy and extremely funny, and we can't recommend it enough. But when he came to speak to us, it was with his other hat on. As one of the founders of the Electronic Literature Organisation and a professor at Brown University, Robert's been experimenting with digital storytelling for more than 20 years, since before most people knew such a thing existed. And he talked to us about hypertext fiction and writing for virtual reality rather than pages and ink. In uh, 89.9, I began teaching a, a workshop in hyperfiction. There hadn't been anything like that before. In fact, if, if you think about the date, it's about uh, a, well, a good year and a half before uh, Tim Berners-Lee makes available to the world the World Wide Web. So when we started our hyperfiction workshops, that had not yet happened. We sort of grew up with the web. I suppose the most innovative or the most uh, uh, instigative thing we did was open up a group uh, fiction space. It was called the Hypertext Hotel. So we opened it up and allowed uh, the students to build uh, anything they wanted in it, to create a room, to create characters, to move them around the corridors, to um, uh, interact with other characters and so on. And this became a kind of, because students being students, became a kind of notorious space which got written up in a lot of places, including the New Yorker, uh, for the kind of wild stuff going on there. It was a very anarchic space. Somebody could get up a very sweet little romance in some room, and someone could just intrude upon that. Um, there was one uh, really talented young poet, a girl, who invented uh, things she called mole rats, and mole rats moved through the pipes, and they went into everybody's story. I mean, they just crept into them and did naughty things all the time. So the, our activities range widely, uh, mostly uh, at the first, just playing with hypertext fiction, but also hypertext poetry, but then branching out into all sorts of other activities, especially once you get into the internet where you have slowly accumulating access to uh, all kinds of other bells and whistles you can make. You can have sound. You didn't have sound before. You can make uh, visuals. You can make a move. You can do all kinds of things that were impossible before. And so that made for a form that was not exactly uh, hyper-fiction, but more like hyper-media fiction. Brown built on campus a uh, immersive virtual reality space. It's a uh, really just kind of a, a box made out of movie screens that are back projected. And it's, uh, you, you wear glasses and it's immersive VR. There isn't anything quite like it anywhere. It's nothing like watching an IMAX movie in 3D, it, which is, sits in front of you and as you push yourself forward, it backs away from you. This is something you step right into and it's all around you. So if there are things 
floating about. You can often pick them up and move them. You can uh, interact with them in many ways. You can cause them to come and go and so on. They're called caves, these things. No, it's kind of fun, and uh, in fact, it's probably what's kept me uh, teaching there brown well past my sell-by date because it's, um, you know, most people get pretty fed up with teaching, but this was a, it's like inviting you to come to campus and get paid to uh, play with a model train set. So whatever is happening, you see things happening, and then there's something that you can go to and click on it, and everything starts to change, and the narrative changes. And you have voiceover, and you have, you have the voice talking to written text and vice versa, so that things that's appearing may be different than what the voice is saying, or it may speak back and forth to each other. Um, and you can have uh, one of the pieces, for example, um, it's a kind of, a kind of um, uh, meditation on memory and the loss of memory is a piece called Scream, and the opening just appears on the walls of somebody thinking about um, uh, the difficulty of holding together memory material before it begins to disintegrate. Then you get three stories also just on the walls, and they're read aloud, and you listen to the story, and you read the story, and there are three little narratives. And after the third one is over, and you've heard this possibility already in that first voice that things come apart, there's a ripping sound, and one of the words actually rips off the screen and begins to fly around you. And then another, send that beam at it, they can push those words back to the wall and restore the memory. But when they do that, the word doesn't necessarily go back where it came out of. It goes to any blank space. So the words flying around end up in odd spaces, and the spaces open up, and if you hit the if you hit the word a little too hard, it breaks up, and so then the bits of it go back and fly into different spaces. And then it gets faster and faster. I mean, you trying to keep up with like age itself. Your memory goes more and more. And as, you, as it gets quicker and quicker, you literally can't throw it all back. And finally, you're swamped by all this language. And it's kind of a white space, and then it darkens out. And the words that... And there's a voice saying in the darkness that about... That, what, what do we do with this dude? And, and the idea being that we, we have to pick up pieces and try again. And with that, uh, the screens light up only with those words that you've pushed back against the walls. So you have now a kind of new poem made up of three stories, but not at all in the order that you originally saw. The most challenging one, and it's quite an extraordinary work, it's a young sophomore. We were talking about Samuel Beckett one day, and I think we were talking about something that might work of his in the cave. And I said, you know, the one that would really be fun to try, but it's the impossible one, is uh, how it is. And how it is, there's a, a guy crawling, crawling through mud in the dark, total dark. He's just crawling through mud, and he eventually, he's carrying some things with him, some, some edibles and a can opener, and he finally uh, encounters another person. And that changes everything for a short time. And then I won't say what happens there. It's kind of rude. But then the next thing is that that person then crawls away and leaves him waiting for who's going to find him there. And could that be a cave piece? And this kid turned it into one. And it's quite a striking piece of, of work. And um, it gives all of the Beckettian angst and, and, and uh, darkness. But yet it's a, it's a visual cave piece. Quite an amazing piece of work. 
it's something people have to understand about hypertext in general, that uh, or, or electronic writing, let's say digital art. All digital art is different. It is fundamentally different from printed art or painted or photographed or uh, scored art. It's it's a different experience, and so long as this digital art form imitates the old art forms, it's only making kind of transitional gesture. It's not really realizing its own full potential. So one anticipates that there, in fact, more than anticipation, it's happening now, that new art forms emerge that don't really uh, challenge the old ones. They just live side by side with them, the way photography lives with painting. So um, it has to do with what I told the students in 1990, when we had our first workshop, I said that, you know, whether it's visible to you or not, we're in to a revolution. And increasingly, the audience is going to be moving into this space. So you can stay on paper and do what you can do on paper, but your audience will be growing over there and shrinking in the paper. That's just, if you want to reach those people with your narrative ideas, you should think about how this system works and what you do. That was Robert Coover, whose seminal collection of short stories, Prick Songs and Descants, is published in Penguin Modern Classics at the end of the month, along with his really hilarious and really filthy novel Gerald's Party and the novellas Brer Rose and Spanking the Maid. To find out more about the books, visit our website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, And look out for another episode of the podcast very soon with Robert reading one of his short stories. Yevgeny Morozov is the author of The Net Delusion, How Not to Liberate the World. And if you'd ever thought that people and politicians sometimes get carried away with the excitement of the internet, of Twitter and Facebook, then reading it is a reassuring way to learn that you're not alone. It's a strong argument in favour of scepticism about the internet's ability to solve all the world's problems. And Yevgeny was kind enough to speak to us about why we should be wary about the power of the internet and how it's going to be used in the future. So what's happening right now is that uh, there are a lot of uh, very sophisticated uh, business companies that uh, rely on data that they gather from social networking sites and social media sites in order to improve uh, you know, their own user experience. So if you think about a company like Pandora, which basically allows you to stream music, uh, now it allows you to log in onto Pandora with your Facebook credentials and then get recommended music that your friends like. Right? And the same can apply to you know, restaurant recommendations or anything else, news. There are all sorts of other ways in which you can actually bring this social element and social layer to your you know, browsing experience. And this sounds like a very good thing in theory, but if you think about the implications, uh, you can also use the same model basically for censorship. Right? It's very easy to know who your friends are and what kind of information they access online, and then make a decision on whether you should see the page you want to access based on who your social circle, what your social circle looks like, and based on what kind of articles you've read in the past. So what is likely to happen is that when you look at a country like China, uh, we'll probably see that um, I know investment bankers who contribute a lot to the economic growth will be allowed to browse everything they want 
uh, in part because they have other investment bankers as their friends, and all they read online is, you know, Financial Times and Bloomberg. Uh, human rights activists, on the other hand, uh, will only be able to access uh, gov- uh, sites that are approved by the government, you know, the local intranet, not internet, if you will, and uh, only because they have other human rights activists that their friends and only read are subversive websites, right? So in that uh, sense, authoritarian uh, governments, I think, will be able to benefit from the opportunities provided by social media to separate uh, people who contribute to economic growth and let them use the internet as they wish from people who actually campaign for political liberalization. And uh, up until now, uh, most of the theorizing about the impact of the internet assumed that authoritarian governments can either censor the internet and thus impede economic growth, or they can let it in and thus you know, allow political liberalization. And I think this customization will actually help them to solve that dilemma. They would be able to have both uh, economic liberalization and they would be able to impose limits on the kind of political liberalization that's likely to happen by letting the internet in, by preventing people who will benefit from it the most from even accessing the websites that they need. In some sense, uh, I think that the debate about the political power of the internet has really been dominated by a few people who heavily lean on the cyber utopian side of the argument. And it's people who love to focus on the positives and uh, deliberately downplay the negatives. When people say that the internet is a tool, I mean, maybe, but it's not in the same category of tools as a hammer is, you know. Uh, so uh, we have to be aware that there are many more political and social consequences that do influence our democratic institutions, our democratic values that come from the internet than come from a hammer. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, I do want uh, a more rigorous, critical thinking and discourse about the internet and people engaging with it in a much more critical level. Uh, the kind of roles they will want the internet to play will, I guess, depend on them understanding the intended and unintended consequences of them using the internet. And if they're fully aware of the kind of potential costs, but also opportunities that the internet gives to them and their, you know, citizenship and their democratic life and participation, you know, I'm fine. They just need to be aware of the costs and aware of the social costs and individual costs. And, you know, if they're fine with them, you know, let it be. I don't think that the information that you post to sites like Facebook uh, is harmless, in part because it may seem harmless at the beginning, when you know you think about it as individual units connected to each other. But when you look at it in the aggregate, you know, if someone knows your username on Facebook and then they figure out a way to know your username on YouTube and Delicious and Flickr and all of the other sites, and then they go and pull and lost the fam and you know any other sites that track what you do online, if they then manage to pull all of this data together, they end up with a fairly complex uh, you know, social media profile and data profile for you that you probably wouldn't want any government to have read. And while you're okay with what you kind of disclose on any website, right? Uh, when you put all of that together, it does begin to look scary. I mean, regardless of the context, of course, the consequences will be much, uh, uh, you know, much worse in the authoritarian context. But I wouldn't be very optimistic about what might happen with the state in the democratic context either. I think the problem of increased customization and accumulation of data and information applies equally to authoritarian and democratic states. I mean, what's happening in democracies is that uh, we have uh, private companies, uh, marketing companies, which gather all this data and then they allow governments to basically purchase it from them. 
you know, in the free market. And uh, but if you think about it, would you really want your government to know all the data that you post on social networking sites? You know, the music you listen to, the photos you upload, the videos you like, the news you like, the pages you like, and all of that, the friends you have, uh, potentially, you know, the kind of uh, articles that you've enjoyed reading, and you know, all of this data we voluntarily self-disclose online because in part it helps us to get a better user experience so the more google knows about you the better it tailors search results right the more facebook knows about you the more relevant advertising it serves to you and you know the more money it makes and the better your experience gets because the investment money and innovation and um, i think this does pose a huge threat uh because um when governments get hold of that data, whether it is in a certain context or in a democratic context, and chances are they're going to abuse it, mm-hmm. right? In the America, in the you know, in the United States, what we've seen is that you know governments are using all this data to you know profile terrorists to figure out where the threats might come from. It basically creates the infrastructure of a police state, mm-hmm. and I think uh, we need to be very careful, and we need to be particularly attentive to the ways and methods by which this data is gathered. And it's all gathered by private companies. And since it's gathered by private companies, not governments, we tend not to pay enough attention. And I think we need to be very attentive. I think when it comes to what users can do, I mean, uh, I think uh, you've posted so much data probably by now that uh, there is very little you can do. Even if you shut down your Facebook page, chances are your data is stored and cached somewhere already. Right, so the best you can do is to make sure that you know you go and read the fine print on everything, and you go and read the fine print on applications that you install on Facebook. And Facebook doesn't do a good job of screening who develops those applications and what kind of access, uh, what kind of access they have to your own data. Right, so what users should be doing is pressuring Facebook to basically respect their rights and to do a better job of screening applications with third-party developers and not to innovate in terms of how much data they disclose to third parties without first asking the user, which often they have a tendency to do. So I think, uh, you know, the question here is really a political question. Will users of the social networking websites be able to organize collectively and, 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 you know, and push for their rights the way, you know, trade unions push for workers' rights and large organizations? And uh, Facebook, of course, can always say, hey, it's a private company, we can do whatever. If you don't like us, move to another site. They think the argument that you have already invested so much data and all of your connections are there and you cannot easily transport your data and your friends to another site, I think does provide a strong argument why it's not a matter of just you know choosing between two private companies. You do have a heavy investment in Facebook socially and you know and emotionally. And I think it's time that users, you know, claim some power back. That was Yevgeny Morozov author of The Net Delusion. Jaron Lanier is the last of our authors talking about the future. Jaron has his own concerns about how the internet is evolving, and his book, You Are Not a Gadget, includes pointers for how to properly be yourself online and resist the limits imposed by social networking sites. You know, I'm concerned a lot of us have made something of um, a foolish bargain in the last few years in which we've accepted um, free gifts, free gifts from friends of mine, from people like me in Silicon Valley, uh, free tools, free video calls and whatnot. And the price we pay for that is twofold. Um, 
one thing is that we have to understand that whenever you get something free in the online world, what's really going on is that you are being turned into a product instead of a customer. You have to understand that the entire system of power and commerce has been inverted on you. When you use Facebook, when you use Skype, when you use Google or Bing, you are being commoditized as a customer and people you don't know are paying to access you or data about you for their own purposes. Um, it's a very strange situation where, for instance, you might make your own Facebook profile, um, but then there's this other profile of you, this other dos dossier about you that is the one that's the really commercially valuable one that you never get to see, will never be leaked by WikiLeaks, is the most deep secret in the world, more secret than anything a government holds. And that thing really starts to have an effect on your life. It starts to affect how money is lent, who you meet, what kind of jobs you get. And the thing is that it's a somewhat... It's a, it's a screwy system because there are these people who, you know, pay for access. And if the whole thing was really working, if Facebook was fully working as advertised or Google or any of these things, you, you know, people would be able to find each other and, and would be able to sort of optimize connections without there being this niche for people to pay for the better dossier of you than the one you see of yourself on Facebook. So it's a very weird way of using the Internet, and yet it's become the standard one. So there, I was saying there's two dangers. One danger is that I think it starts to change people. People obviously have to sort of, um, in order to use these things, you have to fit into the categories and sort of the patterns that the free tools want you to fit into, uh, particularly in Facebook, where you sort of create a set of categories that describe yourself and you, you make your life work as a database entry. And I, I think that has a way of kind of diminishing people or reducing the degree of surprise and chaos in life in a way that's that's not good for your sense of personhood and and uh, it sort of has a spiritual problem and then the other the other level of problem is the uh, economic one where money is being concentrated more and more around the secret server servers that collect dossiers collect information on everybody else uh, the most serious example of this wasn't from silicon valley but was from the financial industries um, and happened in recent years where these uh, hedge fund computers in particular and high-frequency trading computers and other similar things would collect data about the world and use it to hedge investments, which is, if you think about it, is sort of an absurd idea because the whole idea of capitalism is that each player has a particular uh, locality and the whole system is supposed to sort of optimize different players who have different strengths and needs and whatnot and they find each other. But if you're collecting data globally about the whole system and you can place bets on both sides of a transaction and just pull money out of it, you're no longer a player in the system, but you're standing above it uh, very much as the Facebook dossier stands above you and what data you can know about yourself. In the case of the mortgage business, it was really easy to get ill-founded loans that functioned exactly like free Skype calls or free email accounts and free Facebook account accounts. You know, that's the bait that gets everybody to buy into the system. But what happens is all the money and power gets concentrated around the people with the biggest spy computer connected to the Internet. So even though everything's open and everybody has open access, only some people can afford the billions of dollars for the special spy computers that gather all the data. And in the long term, if we're really going to organize human affairs so that the people with the biggest computers and the most math PhDs can concentrate money and power to, you know, and all the other people are sort of being aggregated uh, it sort of <laughs> it means that in exchange 
we're getting some free services now, you're sort of reducing your future prospects, and it's a very bad economic deal. So both on economic grounds and on what I'd call spiritual grounds, I think we've made a wrong turn, and we should instead seek a way of using the Internet in which individual people have a way to both spend and make money from it if we're going to live in a capitalist system or if we want to reject capitalism and money, fine, even in some sort of socialist system, some way that power is genuinely distributed instead of concentrated around the spy computers. Um, so this is a concern I have. Uh, in the meantime, uh, before the entire Internet is redone, <laughs> because people think I'm right, I don't know if that'll happen, but anyway, in the meantime, there are little things you can do to avoid being aggregated and regimented. And some of the things I think are just to resist the easy grooves of the free tools that you're given. So don't live your life in a way that is describable by Facebook. If you ever find yourself not frustrated by some sort of category that you might or might not be, like some group you might or might not associate yourself with on Facebook or something of this kind, if you're not frustrated, then you're not really living. You should be resisting the grooves. You should find that every time you use these tools, they don't describe you. You should be struggling against that. That's a test of um, the degree to which you're living your life from within or being directed by these spy servers. Um, never post anonymously unless you might really be in danger because that tends to encourage troll-like behavior. Um, do things that really require a lot of effort rather than sort of a cheap amount of effort. So if you, if you find yourself once in a while, oh, I don't know, tweeting or um, adding to Wikipedia entry or something like that, that's, that's fine. But also match that by doing something like that really tests your abilities in the same sort of area. Like if you, if you're, if you do a little bit of tweaking of Wikipedia page, also make a special website about whatever the, the topic is that really <laughs> entrances people into it, gives them a personal perspective on it, gives them some of the flavor of it instead of just raw data. Um, if you're tweeting or, or even blogging, think about writing something that you'd still be ready to read in 50 years, something that, that you spend much more time on than it takes to read or something that, um, that really takes risks something where you're willing for people to disagree with you, like really push it. Um, I think in a sense, the challenge of being a person in the age of the internet is no different than it's ever been in that if you take the easy way, you're not yourself or you don't discover yourself. And that's always been true. So in one sense, there's nothing new here. And then in another sense, <laughs> there's never been so many temptations to take the easy way. There've never been uh, so many traps to become a semi-person. So I, I hope you push it and really discover yourself. And by the way, that includes not necessarily agreeing with me, so feel free to <laughs> feel free to disagree with either all or part of my book or whatever. And that's it for the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books talked about on this podcast, visit our website at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you've got any comments or suggestions, we'd really like to hear them. You can email us at podcast at penguin.co.uk. Or if you'd rather tweet at us, we're at Penguin Podcast on Twitter. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.